I'm just going to lay it out there. This is a tough sermon. I got heckled a little bit at 845, true story. Uh, so uh, if anybody feels the need to heckle me later, it won't be the first time. So go ahead and do it. It's fine. Um, but it's a, it's a tough one. It's a tough, tough subject. And as with any tough sermon, I like to start with something cute, like my children. So I thought I would start with a cute picture of my daughter. This is uh, not contrived or manipulative at all. So this, <laughs> this is my daughter when she was nine months old, Zyra Joel, my princess. And uh, this was about 10 years ago when this picture was taken. Um, when this picture was taken, she hadn't yet started to talk. Um, but when she did start to talk, she never stopped. So it's been 10 years of constant talking. But uh, at this time, at this picture, as I was holding her little hands or she was holding mine, um, she hadn't said a word yet. She did, however, say her first word and her first sentence within about six weeks of this picture being taken. Two of the proudest moments of my life. Her first word, she said, um, early one morning, uh, the sun had just come up, so it may, may have been six o'clock in the morning, and uh, Gio and I were laying in bed, and we heard this whimper from her crib, like the, the baby monitor, right? And uh, because she's the firstborn, it didn't take any more than a whimper for us to go running to her. Uh, her little brother was not, not so lucky. It took a lot more for him to get <laughs> any attention. That's just how it works. Uh, <laughs> but when she whimpered, we came running. And we went running. And I could tell from her voice there was something wrong. I opened the door to her room, saw her in her crib. I knew immediately what was wrong. Um, she looked up at me, but she couldn't see me because her, her eyes were swollen and glued shut by a thin line of crispy mucus. And uh, I knew exactly what this was. This was conjunctivitis, pink eye. And I was disgusted. <laughs> I know how you get pink eye if you don't. You can look it up online or watch that movie, Knocked Up, and they tell you how you get pink eye. It's disgusting. It's gross. She had it in both eyes at the same time. She couldn't see a thing. I couldn't just leave her there. You know, I love her. I'm supposed to love her. And, uh, and so I was responsible for her. For her and, and, and she was terrified. If you can imagine being nine months old, and for the first time in your life, you wake up and can't open your eyes. Like, that's got to be a shock to the system. Right? Uh, maybe she thought she was blind or, or life would never be the same. I don't know what was going through her little brain, but it had to be terrifying. And so I, I just picked her up and I held her, you know, at a safe distance. And uh, <laughs> it's highly contagious, conjunctivitis. And I said, oh, baby, what's wrong? And she said, uh-oh. <laughs> and I said, oh, my gosh, my nine-month-old daughter said her first Word, she's so ahead of the curve. Don't tell me uh-oh is not a word. By the way, I looked it up. It's in the dictionary. So that was her first word, way ahead of the other kids. Not that that meant anything. I mean, I told everybody that I knew, but it didn't matter. It's, uh-oh, and I was so filled with pride at my little, you know, weird-eyed kid, that <laughs> infected kid that was so smart, just a genius, you know. She said, uh-oh, and I got her cleaned up, and we had a great day and got some antibiotics in those eyes. A few weeks after that, um, she, by that time, had learned to say some other words. And so by that time, she was saying, for example, dada. And I, I don't know why or what it means, but she said dada, you know, long before she said mama. I don't know why that means <laughs> anything, but it, um, I don't think it means anything. 
Uh, but she said da-da, and then, and then um, some other words. And, but she hadn't yet said her first complete sentence until one morning. It was even earlier than the first episode I told you about. It was like the middle of the night, maybe 3 a.m., when, when we heard again from the baby monitor um, some whimpering. But this seemed more intense, and we could hear some, like, sloshing around of some kind. And I didn't know what that was. And so I went running, went into her room, and uh, this scene was even more horrific than the first. Uh, there was blood everywhere, which is a shock to the system when you walk in and see your daughter just bathing in her blood. Uh, but she had sprung a leak. Her nose had started bleeding. And I don't know when, but judging by the amount of blood, it was like six to eight hours before I got to the room because <laughs> it was everywhere. It was like a crime scene. And she was covered in it, her clothes, her sheets, her hair was all matted with blood, the walls. She had finger painted a little. Like, it was a lot going on. And again, I just filled with compassion but still grossed out. I just picked her up. Baby, what's wrong? And she said, Dada, I'm a mess. <laughs> her first sentence, I'm a mess. First word, uh-oh. First sentence, I'm a mess. <laughs> it's pretty good, right? So we tell that story a lot in our house because uh, Gio and I understand like our role with our kids to be as like their, their pastor, like we're their lead pastors. Even before we're your pastors, we're like their pastors at home 24-7. And if you've got kids, like it's not my job to be your kid's lead pastor. That's your job. You're the lead pastor of your home, lead pastor of your kids. So you should be having spiritual conversations. And, and these stories of her first word and her first sentence, they play into our spiritual care of our kids. Because I think that's theological, right? So in the same way that, that Joel's life began um, really by saying, uh-oh, and I'm a mess, my life in Christ began with the same words, basically, with uh, uh, an acknowledgement that something's not right, uh-oh, and an admission that I'm part of the problem, I'm a mess. When we begin with, uh-oh, and, and I'm a mess, there is an openness uh, to grace that we don't have if we don't recognize our part in the problem. Like, a lot of times, we're heavy on the uh-oh, but light on the I'm a mess. And we know there's something wrong, but we don't want to admit we're part of the problem. The problem is somebody else. It's somewhere else, right? People that are not like us. We're talking about um, this book uh, called Romans, and, and I think this is um, really essential teaching. Very simple, very essential to understanding the way of Christ. That's why Paul spends most of the first half of his letter, of his most important letter, to the Romans, on this concept of being open to grace because you are a mess. And he's writing to these groups of Christians in Rome who came to Jesus already highly religious, right? And so he, he's writing to shake people free from their religion. Right? And I'm talking about like the Jewish people and their religious practice. They brought those religious practices with them to Jesus and said, Jesus, how do you fit into my religion? And the same was true with the non-Jews, the, Hebrew, the, the uh, Gentile Christians. They brought their pagan religious practices to Jesus and said, how do you fit into my preconceived notions? And so Paul spends the first half of Romans writing to both groups of people, trying with all that he has to shake them free from their religious convictions, which is one of the hardest things to do, 
to shake a person free from their religion. And yet Paul thinks it's mission critical, so he goes at it full bore for several chapters. And, and, you know, it's important to us, too. It's mission critical to us, too. You all know that our mission, I hope you know by now, our mission is to inspire non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus. It's always interesting to me, however, when people who were pre-religious hear that mission, they assume, some of you might assume, that our mission, therefore, is to make non-religious Houstonians religious. And if that's your assumption, you could not be more wrong. We do not intend to make non-religious Houstonians more religious. We truly do not believe that, that the world or the city of Houston needs more religion. We truly believe that when Jesus was on the cross pouring out his innocent blood, the blood of God being poured out for us, that it was him saying, when he said, it is finished, he was saying the way of religion the way of religious practice and sacrifices for God to make him happy so that the gods aren't angry with us, the way of religion that says, you know, I better do good enough or God won't love me or I won't be saved or I'll go to hell, you know, that kind of thing where you never stood on solid ground with God because it depended on your performance, it is finished. We believe that to be true. And so did Paul. But it's so hard to shake people free from their religion. And this isn't even always about like uh, denominations or you know Christianity versus other world religions. Sometimes our religions are just like worldviews. They're just dogmas, right? That we are just wrapped around. That we are so committed to that, uh, that we, we can't imagine life without them. Listen, for Paul, religion was incompatible with authentic Christian living. So just let that sink in for a sec. For Paul, the religious life, or putting religion at the center of your life, was incompatible with following Jesus. So if you come to the story pre-religious, like you're already religious when you come to the story, please don't think that you're doing us any favors. Like, it's not easier for us. It's actually harder for us to achieve our mission with religious people because you've added a step to the process. We've got to make you non-religious before we make you follow Jesus, you know? Like, it's harder then because it's way easier to inspire a non-religious person to follow Jesus because they don't have to give up their religion first, right? Sometimes it's our religion that's the biggest stumbling block. And Paul, he, this is not me just pontificating. Paul makes this point. Clearly, Romans chapter 4, it's not today's focus passage, but I've got to talk about Romans 4, because in Romans 4, Paul talks directly to the Jewish Christians, those who brought their Jewish faith and practice to Jesus and said, fit into this, Jesus, fit into this box that we've been living. For the Jewish Christians, they still followed Old Testament law, and they believed, because their religion informed them this way, that insiders in their religion were the good guys, and outsiders were the bad guys. They believed that they had the truth, they had the way of following God and knowing God, and it involved eating this way, relating to others this way, working this way, resting this way, and doing life this way. And, and the way that you knew, like the hallmark of a Jewish man, for example, uh, was by this ritual called circumcision, which is a weird thing to talk about. I don't really want to talk about it, so I'm only just going to spend a few seconds talking about this. But, because it's awkward, but Paul mentions Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, the man they all look up to as the reason, their reason that they're here, you know, like Abraham was the conduit of God's plan 
for the Jewish people. And God promised him, I'll make you a father of many nations, and God followed through on that promise. But Paul says, look, go back and visit the Abraham story, because when God called Abraham, he wasn't circumcised. He wasn't a good Jew. He didn't follow the Torah. He didn't know about the law. It wasn't his religion that made him righteous before God. It was his faith. Genesis 15, 4, Paul quotes this in Romans 4, but in Genesis 15, 4, it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God called Abraham righteous, even though he was still a sinner, even though he still made mistakes and he still tried to screw up God's good plans for his life. God called Abraham righteous because Abraham believed God, which is the definition of faith. This is a good working definition of faith, is believing God, not just believing in God in an esoteric way, like a child believes in the tooth fairy, believing God and his promises will come to pass regardless of how we try to act against them or how we might mess them up or how broken we are. God is faithful. God is good. We just sang it in this song earlier. You are good. You are good. It is a reminder that God's promises do not fail even when the world seems to be falling apart. And it's not based on your ethnicity or your nationality or your creed or your religion. It's based on God's grace meeting your faith. Believing God is what led Abraham to be called righteous before God. And then we pick this up in uh, Romans 5. You have study guides, and y'all can follow along if you find those helpful, or you can open a Bible or a Bible app if you have it. Romans 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Some of y'all, if you're not really religious and you're not really versed in the Bible, you'll still recognize some of these verses because they're just part of our cultural uh, vernacular. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified, justified is found not guilty or found righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in grace, Paul says. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, any of you are in recovery, 12-step groups, this is where the notion of powerlessness comes from, the essential nature of being Acknowledging your powerlessness, this is where they, this is what inspired that. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, since we now have been justified by his blood. How much more will be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast or brag about God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation or healing for our brokenness. <clears throat> All right, so some of these uh, lines will be familiar, especially that one about suffering, producing Perseverance, perseverance producing character, and character producing hope. Sometimes, 
if I'm honest, it feels to me like Paul just throws a bunch of religious words against a wall and hopes some of it sticks with us. <laughs> like, some of this is easy for uh, to go in one ear and out the other. It feels like just preacher talk, but I'm telling you, Paul is very intentional with his words. Still, I cannot lie and pretend as though this is always the process I go through when I'm faced with suffering in this life. This is not always how it works out. Even after you come to Jesus and you trust him with your whole heart, right? You put him at the center of your life, suffering comes your way, family drives you nuts, you don't get the job you need, you can't pay the bill you gotta pay, or whatever it is that's going on, the world seems to be falling apart around you and you suffer, this isn't always the process that takes place in the after, at least not for me. If it is for you, I need to know your secret. Because for me, oftentimes, suffering doesn't produce perseverance and character and hope. <laughs> for me, oftentimes, suffering produces frustration. And frustration produces impatience. And impatience produces boneheaded decisions, usually, is how it works for me if I'm not prayed up, rested up, if I'm not doing Sabbath, you know, if I'm not connecting with God, sometimes that's the process that unfolds. This is not an automatic, and I'm sure that some of y'all go through the same thing. Some, for some of you, this feels super foreign. Because there is a secret sauce here that is assumed by Paul and by his readers, because Paul talks about it all the time. The secret sauce in this formula is the chemical reaction that happens when God's Grace, his free gift of total forgiveness for everything you've ever done or doing, will do. Total forgiveness by the cross of Jesus. When that grace intersects with our faith, with us believing God and his promises are true, that's what creates the arrow between suffering and perseverance. So when that intersection is, is at work, when God's grace is there, I acknowledge it. I know that I need it. I'm open to it because, uh, oh, I'm a mess, you know, and I'm open to it. And my faith meets his grace. That takes me from a place of deep suffering to perseverance because I replace my own limited worldview, uh, you know, that gets me caught up in the day-to-day -day suffering of my everyday life with the worldview of God, which sees the world with such perspective. And I'm no longer taken down into that tailspin that I used to be, especially pre-Jesus, y'all. The tailspin of anxiety and sin and shame where I try to take matters into my own hands, I try to fix my own problem, one lie leads to another, and I'm just a basket case at the end of that process. But when, when God's grace meets my faith, that takes me from suffering to a place of perseverance. I get through those seasons unscathed, right? And that produces in me a higher form of character that looks more like Jesus, which gives me more hope because God's promises are true. But I will confess that even as recently as this week, 36 hours ago probably, I uh, was in a whole different place than I'm talking about today. This week was hard for me. Anybody else? This was a tough one. And I was down uh, pretty low uh, toward the end of the week especially with uh, you know, the news. And I always tell people to turn the news off, and then I don't. Uh, <laughs> So do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. 
Uh, but listen, this, this Kavanaugh hearing stuff, it really, it really set off something inside of me uh, and gave me a lot of despair. Not so much the hearing itself, but the public response afterward, right? Um, uh, and, you know, I was just in the hearing itself, I, I found both of them to be somewhat credible. The truth is no, no one knows. No one really knows what happened except for parties involved. And we can bring our own dogmatic worldview to the situation and make judgments. But at that point, we're speculating, right? And everybody on the polar opposites that I saw was bringing their own dogmatic judgments to the table and saying, I've got this right. We're right over here. And anyone that questions us is wrong. And this group was saying, we're right over here. Everyone that questions us is wrong. And, you know, I had all these questions, and I suppose I should have taken those questions to, you know, God or to, or to the Bible, to my wife, or to a trusted friend. But instead, I took those questions to Twitter. Worst mistake I've ever made. <laughs> Worst mistake I've ever made. Because in the media, especially social media, follow-up and response to the actual hearings... I saw, uh, I felt like a vision of what's going to happen if and when America falls apart, like this is what's going to be, right? So like polar opposites that hate each other, hate each other so much that they have no interest or intention in understanding each other. They just talk past each other and at each other and judge each other. And both sides do it equally because they're so convinced in their own righteousness. They're so convinced, yeah, there's an uh-oh, but I'm not a mess. You know, they're the mess. This world is broken, but they're the reason why. And one side said men are the reason why. And the other side said feminists are the reason why. And nobody's listening to each other. But I just had a bunch of questions, you know. I'm pretty sure something awful happened to Dr. Ford. Like, I'm pretty sure something terrible. And that way I definitely believe her. And I believe that, that we should listen to stories like this. They're powerful because for too long we as a society, even within the church, in some cases especially within the church, have hushed these voices and we need to be humble and listen. My heart broke for her. I've got a daughter who could be her one day or could be through a situation like that. My son could be a victim too. Not just women. We should listen and be careful and not quick to judge. You know, and, 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 I, and on the other hand, like, yeah, my heart kind of broke for Judge Kavanaugh, too. Like, I don't know. And if he knows he's innocent, man, <laughs> the hypocrisy of our dogmatic thinking could not have been more clear to me. But it wasn't clear to those who were being dogmatic. So as an example, you know, the same people who said, look at her tears. This is surely a sign that she's telling the truth. Like two hours later said, look at his tears. No innocent man would cry that way. They're like, what? What are we talking about here? Do you not hear the cognitive dissonance? You don't because that is the effect that toxic religion has on us. It convinces us that we are secure in our own self-righteousness and they are the problem. And uh, people on the other side weren't any better, honestly. And that broke my heart a little bit more because the, you know, the right is known as the religious right or the Christian right, and they often bear the name of Jesus. And when they mess up, it hurts a little worse. 
makes our job a little harder. People bearing the name of Jesus say stupid things that they should stop saying forever. Like even if it did happen, she should have known better than go to a party where boys are drinking. Shut up about it. Like don't say that. Don't even think it. If you do, take the name of Jesus out of your mouth. We can do better. We must do better. You know, I had always questioned that. Those questions, I had a question of like having a son and like are we going to set a precedent in America where, you know, a meaningful accusation but without a ton of evidence is enough to just derail something or someone's life, you know, like is that what we want to set up for people? Like that, that was wrecking me too, you know. I don't know. It just seems like uh, everyone is convinced of their own righteousness and their own understanding, and no one really wants to stop and consider the fact that they might not be right. Because religion demands certainty. Religion abhors questions. But if you listen to Jesus and his words, if you really dig in to Jesus, you won't find somebody who demands iron-clad dogma, ever. You'll find somebody who welcomes questions. In fact, he answers questions with more questions sometimes, just to make the questioner think, to make questioners comfortable. You know, Jesus is so much better than these addictions to dogma that we have. But listen, I want to talk specifically to those of you who are in one of these camps, right, where you're dogmatic and you're so deep in it that you know your side is right and the other side is wrong. You know your side is not the problem, the other side is. Listen, I truly know what that is like on both sides. I've got this unique experience. I grew up in the Southern Bible Belt and convinced of that Bible Belt dogma in my teens. And in my 20s, I became a dogmatic leftist socialist. So I've seen the best and worst of both sides. I know what it's like to be locked into these worldviews and to dig in your heels. And you must be right. Because if you're not right about every single point, you can't expose a weak link in your chain because then it's all going to fall apart. Listen, that's religion at its worst. And gospel is so much better for you, not just for the world. It's so much better for you. Here's the difference. Religion says, I'm right, I must be right, I need to prove myself right, even if it means I lose friends and family and Facebook friends, I need to be right. Gospel says, I don't need to be right anymore because my rightness has no bearing whatsoever on the promises of God that come to pass whether or not I'm right. I don't need to be right. I need to be forgiven, but I don't need to be right. Because even though after coming to faith in Jesus, I've messed up, I've screwed up, I've tried to derail God's plans, even though the world doesn't always go the way God might want it to, even though you know, the Supreme Court of whatever country or whatever time in history might go one way or another, step back and have some perspective, have a gospel worldview that says God's promises are true, they will come to pass, and I choose to believe God over and above all things, all politics, all dogma, and all other world views. Listen, I don't need to be right. I need to be forgiven because, as Paul says in Romans, at just the right time, 
while I was still an enemy of God. He laid down his life for me. And in Romans 5, 8, it says, God demonstrated his love for you in this. While you were still a sinner and you were still in your sin, Christ died for you. The difference the gospel makes is this. I used to wake up every day hoping to prove myself in some way. It's a lot of pressure to be right all the time. Instead, now I wake up every day and start my day by saying, uh-oh. That died. I'm a mess. And you don't say that to feel bad about yourself. It's not about shame. It's about understanding that though you are a mess, and though you've been the perpetrator of untold crimes, because you've taken advantage of people, you've not extended the same mercy to others that God has extended to you, you've not forgiven in the same capacity that God has forgiven you, you've not loved the way you have been loved, even though you've been a criminal, despicable, disgusting before the holiness of God, he's picked you up and said, what's wrong? Let's fix it. You're mine, and it's okay. That's why we say, uh-oh, I'm a mess. So God and his grace are all that matters. When his grace meets your faith, your life will forever change. I'm going to say this, and I'm done. Listen, if you are by nature or by experience a dogmatic person, I want to challenge you right now, whatever that is, conservative politics, liberal politics, if you're one of the United Methodist nerds that think the Methodists are the only ones going to be in heaven or whatever, I don't know if they exist, but like that, if you're one of those, like whatever it is you're wrapped around, it's holding you back from being the gospel-driven follower of Jesus that God is calling you to be. It's holding you back from seeing the fulfillment of God's promises in your life. Lay it down. Lay it down. You don't have to be right. You don't have to demonize the other side. You don't have to pretend like they're more broken than you are. Lay it down, surrender, let it go, and just be Jesus. Be Jesus taking up your cross, loving the ones who even put you there, living the light of this forgiveness so that the whole world will know, listen, that's how you change a city. That's how you change a family. That's how you save a marriage is when both people Say to one another every day, my sin is the biggest problem this marriage faces. I am the biggest problem in the world, as far as I can tell. My sin is the biggest challenge this world has to face, as best I, as best I can tell, right? When you start from that vantage point, there is such a humility there that it draws others to this promise that you are living for. Let it go. Let it go and be Jesus. Nothing else. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your mercy and your might and your grace and your wonder that set us free from who we were to be the people you called us to be. Humble, slow to speak and quick to listen, willing to lay down our lives and to lay down being right for the sake of loving people the way you first loved us. 
Lord, give us hearts of flesh that beat with love for the people around us, for they too are your sons and daughters. Even if they don't know it yet, you're calling them. You're calling them home. Lord, may we be an open door and not a stumbling block in their path. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.